You're listening to the Irish Times. Hello, welcome to the Out of Time podcast. Malachi Clerken is away being windswept and interesting somewhere. I'm Pat Nugent and I'm joined this week in the studio by Gavin Comiskey. Gavin, how are you? Pat, good morning. Uh, Later on, we're going to be chatting to Dan Comer about the fascinating off-season that's been going on in the NFL. There's been sex scandals, there's been bizarre transfers. Mr. Kraft. Mr. Kraft, indeed. And we have the uh, NFL draft coming up on Thursday of this week. Um, Before that, we'll be chatting to Jerry Thornley about about the rugby and the European Cup semi-finals of the weekend. You were working in the Aviva on Mm. Sunday, but you were watching... Munster on TV on Saturday and their defeat to Saracens. You were quite taken, I think, with BT Sport's coverage of the game. Do you know, I watched it, um, what BT Sport did, and I was annoyed and I could see like that uh, social media blew up as well and were like, just the, the tone-deaf nature of it or how they kind of almost hadn't planned how to deal with the Bullapola situation, which was going to come up. Now, it came up in a major way because of the way they dealt with it. But I decided to go home after the game and deal with it, watch it all again, watch the entire BT Sport coverage again in the morning before writing about it. Mm. And I ended up writing a column and uh, and Johnny Waterson wrote about it very well from Coventry, but I'd actually direct everyone towards Mary Hannigan's TV column. Because I feel that BT Sport did a public disservice to uh, their viewers. Explain what they did. So... Like Binny Vodopola scored the try. We, Billy, what Binny Vodopola has done, I think, is on is well on record now how he supported Israel Folau's homophobic hate speech and how he not just liked it, he came out himself on Instagram and he was Saracens, his club, completely came against what he said about how it's his fate and how um, we have to always re- repeat what he said. A man was made to procreate with women. No, that was just the major thing that upset so many people. And Saracens distanced themselves from it the week before their biggest game of the season. The RFU brought him in and warned him. Same thing that the Australia had to do with Falao the year before. And then he comes on and he wins man of the match and he scores a try that's typical of him, probably the best number eight in the world, runs over the best Munster can offer him. And as he's coming back over halfway line, Nick Mullins, this really respectable uh, BT Sport commentator, goes on about how, oh, you know, the headlines and the chatter and if only he hadn't liked that message and the worst week in 10 days of his life. And as this is happening, Billy Vonapola is going over to um, Munster fans who'd been booing him, like the crowd in Bristol the week before. But now there's like a lot of LGBT flags in the crowd, which was kind of cool to see, you know what I mean? Mm. Like that, that's where we are in modern society and not just this closed, closeted rugby world. And he goes over to him and makes a gesture, we'll say, and he kind of sticks it to them, you know what I mean? And it was... It was obscene what he did. And Nick Mullins was celebrating the fact that I look at him, at least he can smile again after this tough week. Yeah, they gave him a redemption arc, they were saying. It was, it was, and they, like, and Craig Doyle was trying to find a middle ground when he was coming back to him. <laughs> and he just, they, they just really and truly proved. Craig, Craig Doyle, let's, let's quote him. Well, you Mary's may or may not like some of the things he has to say on social media, but the fact is that he's an absolutely brilliant rugby player. Yeah. There you go. So, look, I don't think there's any surprise to us. Sarah Elgin, who, who's the post-match commentator as well, she tried to kind of, there was like a, some journalistic instinct in there. She was trying to get the topic mm. to Billy Vonapola. Um, but look, BT Sport are cheerleaders. I think we all knew that. Like Sky Sports were before them with their rugby coverage and they've just doubled down on a higher level and they missed it. And if you go, social media goes too far. It really does. And it was people, it was hate speech coming the other way against... Billy Vonapola and Israel Folau, which is not right. And against BT Sport, he got too much abuse, I yeah. thought. 
but you got to listen to what people are saying. You got to listen to what the tone and what the vibe is. They are a sports channel, but like yeah, actually, just on that, just to show it, that it can be done the right way. Channel Four the fall uh, the following morning. This had, is important. Yeah, Channel Four had the live co- coverage of the Leinster game, but in the morning they had a program called the Big Tackle where they had Gareth Thomas on, and we just have a have a clip of Gareth Thomas there. Gareth, this is a huge story, a personal story for you. It's taken rugby off the back pages to the front pages for all the wrong reasons. Israel Falau, we know his views. He's said that things like this before. He's got previous. Did you think that Billy's latest reply was an acceptable response? Unbelievably unacceptable. And to say that he means things with kindness and love. As an openly gay man myself, I don't feel kindness and love from him agreeing with somebody that I should go to hell. Look, Pat, Garrett Thomas uh, is a former Lions captain, former Wales captain for people who just don't know, and he is a, like a hero in Wales. He was assaulted for his sexuality a couple of months ago mm. in Cardiff. Um, and for him to come out and say this, and like, I think it's important that we're not um, seen to be kind of ganging up on people for their Christian faith or giving a hard time. Billy Funapola went on BBC Five Live straight after the match and said, my faith is what got me in this position. It's something I'm going to stick by. It was quite a motivating packed factor when people were booing me. I wanted to back up my words. Now, these are the words that he was admonished for and warned for by the RFU and by Saracens. Imagine I said that after the Irish Times had warned me not to say something or had warned me about something, my behaviour. And I went on and said, I wanted to back up my words. Mm. You know, so... At what point is this cannot go away? This issue, this this issue remains like right up in the front, and look, BT Sport. I think the only way they could actually fix something like this, and I don't think they'll do it, because they have a discussion show, they have a rugby show, and like the issue now, Christian beliefs are now and and their attack and their homophobic stance is now an issue that's like embedded in rugby and it is not going to go away. I feel that BT Sport drove thousands of teenage homosexuals away from their sport with what they did. And it, after all that Gareth Thomas says, after all the work of Nigel Owens, I really feel that their lionisation of Billy Vonapola on Saturday have done that. They've said, this is not the sport for you. Now, what they could do, and I actually suggested it to them, was they put, you put Gareth Thomas and Billy Vonapola in a room these are two people who've definitely come across each other. They're both lions and they're both, they're obviously a generation, slight generation apart. Put them in a room, put them on TV. Nigel Owens, Israel Folau, get these men on, into a room and on TV because rugby has an issue that will not leave it alone now. Like this will go on and on. At what point does Billy Vonapola double down on his fate or does he go, okay, my rugby career, my contract is more important? Because it looks to me like Falau decided that... Uh, that his faith was more important? Up to the point now that all his lawyers are trying to get back his 1.4 million uh, Aussie dollar a year contract now. He's about to go to tribunal for that. He's going to fight for that. So which is more important? You know, So that's the only way out of this. But it was... The worst thing was we're going to talk about a brilliant weekend of rugby. And it's been... I, I feel like... It, it sours I, it a bit, I had nothing. It? I felt like the first thing I had to write during the Leinster match was this. And I was watching an unbelievable game of rugby. It, it, over, it doesn't overshadow it because the sport always wins, you know what I mean? But I really felt there was another, again, for the second week running a dark weekend for rugby. Let's move on to the actual rugby and, and chat about that. Um, Jerry Thorney joins us now in the studio. Jerry, we're going to look first at that Munster game. Saracens 32, Munster 16. Munster really can't have any complaints about this game, can they, Jerry? They were just outclassed. No, they can't and they don't. They were... Quite frank, every bit as frank as Toulouse were after their defeat as well, that they lost to the better side. Um, 
it's hard to think of a Heineken Champions Cup where the demarcation lines have been so clear in that the best eight sides probably made the quarterfinals, the best four sides made the semifinals, and undoubtedly the best two sides have made the final. Right. And um, it's, it's like that's their third year in a row in the semifinals, which is a great achievement. Like, they're dining at the top table. Um, but there, there's a bit of a glass ceiling there now. I mean, even I'm coming around to that view now because it just felt like it more than as much as ever. This was two years on from the semi-final against Saracens, and they were three points down at halftime and lost by 16, an exact replica of two years ago. This is the game at the Aviva <clears throat> two years ago. Yeah, and um, just, um, it, it was like, Dunico Callan was so resigned post-match on television as a former Munster player, just talking about being outclassed and... Saracens just carried far too much, as one suspected they might do. I think it was cruel that they lost their two joint leading try scorers, Joey Carby and Keith Earls. You look through the back line and that's much of their X factor gone, really. Um, but it's hard to think that even if those two were there, that would have dramatically altered the way things panned out. They went after Munster in the air quite ruthlessly from early on. They got a huge joy out of that. Got a territorial and possession foothold in the game. And I think what the semi final did show was that. Munster's defence has improved dramatically this year because that was a mighty effort to keep them to keep Saracens to 12-9 at half time but um, it, eventually the dam had to burst and it did Gavin it did very much so feel like that semi-final at the Viva two years ago and that Munster just seemed to batter themselves into a wall for much of the game is that a sign of a lack of progress or are they running to stand still? Have Saracens improved? No uh, Saracens have improved or they're certainly back to that standard no, no, Tyler Blaine Hall was the out half again, but they had Duncan Williams at scrum half the last day. Tactically, they were really naive two years ago. Um, this time, it was they were over in Coventry, which was something that's probably a bit disruptive. I presume it was a bit disruptive. But their fran- when Munster lost their franchise player, their franchise player, they signed them last summer's name is Joey Carberry. And he is their quarterback. He is the thing that they're building their team around. And it became apparent that he was going to take them to a new level. And he has every time he's he was getting once he got into his brilliant rhythm. Now I, I think Jerry's right when you take him and their Keith Earls, their best strike player out of the game. They probably had if you put them both in, they probably would have lost as well. But the great monster wins have always been Raj Ronagar dragging them, kicking and screaming. His just flawlessness of his boot, like making a game that they're supposed to lose seem possible all the way through. In 06 and 08, they just don't win those finals without Ronagar on the pitch. You don't, without your guy that you've centred your team around. You Probably a good few matches along the way as well. Yeah. <laughs> so Carberry is sh- is the guy who looks like he's going to shape into that, not Tyler mm. Blainhall. It's clear as day. Like the, 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 An out half, a really special out half, changes games that you're not supposed to be able to change. And Carberry's hamstring going was the end of Munster's chances of pro- progressing to the finals. The, uh, Ty Burns brought some improvement to them. Um, I don't think they're from five was anywhere near the ballpark. I think Leinster will be in that ballpark with mm-hmm. Saracens, which we'll talk about, but Munster weren't. Um, maybe they have to look at the, the, the foreign player they're bringing in, the one or two special ones that we see that Leinster are able to bring in that are really special. Same with Ulster, with Coetzee. Munster aren't doing that. But as we will move on and look at your, when your franchise player is on form, like the Aviva Stadium the next day, anything is possible. Very hard for Munster to compete with a squad like Saracens. Like they don't, they're nothing in the same realm of the same salary cap. 
And, uh, nor well, do they have marquee been. players, nor can they, nor do they have a benefactor who's going to do private equity deals or, you know, yeah, six, seven figure property deals. You know. like, this, don't so, worry, we're not getting in trouble here. This is all on this the record. This is all on the record. And, and Munster can't do this. The Vulnapolis have a co-investment deal with uh, Nigel Ray. So does uh, Owen Farrell. So does Mara with Toje. Yeah, I think Rigglesworth has one as well. Yeah. So they have property deals on top of their... Uh, their this s- was the thing that Saracens accidentally revealed recently. Yeah, the Daily Mail broke this story about a month ago. I suggest people go back and read it. It's gone on and on. There's like off the field, they've had a, a religious issue, which we've dealt with. And they've, they have now an, an investigation into uh, their um, way they pay their players or the way they look after their players. But unfortunately, as we suspected all along here a week ago, all this was ever going to do was make them circle the wagons. They thrive in an us-against-the-world kind of Millwall mentality. They don't mind the fact that their fans are hugely outnumbered. They don't mind that the world seems to be against them. They actually use it and they thrive under it. And they had all their big game players back as well, whereas Munster were missing a couple of theirs. So um, how do Munster bridge that gap? Well, I think... You know, the fact that Van Gran and Carberry and Murray have all signed on long-term is a good sign. They just have to develop as much as they can from within. Carberry will get better and better. Their their attacking game will get better and better. And maybe... The obsession with Europe is all very well and good, but maybe as a stepping stone to getting to breaking through that glass ceiling, they need to get a title. And they probably need the Pro 14 title more than any other Irish team now to make that step. The only thing is, will they have Carberry and Earls? Yeah, I know. They need them Mm. to get they need Carberry back on the pitch, and a trophy would be really wouldn't it? They they need to show trophy since 2011. They need to show progress Mm. and a trophy. I think the Pro 14. I think they should be able to motivate themselves to really go after that now. Yeah, I remember last year in the RDS, they only lost narrowly to Leinster in the RDS, and Simon Zebo and Keith Earls conjured a breakout from their own line with the last play of the game. Imagine if they'd gone the length of pitch and won that game and won that title. The confidence that would just inject in a... Like, you know, you see it in loads of examples. Just getting that first title makes all the world of a difference to an organisation. So I think they really have to go after the Pro 14 now. They've got a game against Connacht on Saturday that if they win and Glasgow slip up against Edinburgh, they could bypass the quarters and get a home semi. Failing that, they're probably going to play the, the winners of the Ulster-Connacht game in the semi-finals. And then I think they might run into Leinster in the semi-finals, wouldn't they? I don't care about Pro 14 anymore. Do you not? Well, <laughs> no. I do. Still. I just care Monster about you. <laughs> I don't care. And I, I think I, I think you saw it when you came out of um, the Viva Stadium on Sunday. I'd love to ask get your opinion, this Jerry, on Coventry and the crowd and all that. But there was a real feeling around the place. It was an Easter Sunday, and it was like they didn't actually pack the Viva Stadium, but Leinster fans did a pretty good job of yeah. filling the pubs around the place till 10, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, there's a real feeling that people want the highest kind of entertainment. Now. I... Pro 14 semis or quarters with, that are inter pros will whet the appetite. Absolutely, and like the Pro 14 final will be interesting and all that. But um, I think it's just there's a there's a higher echelon of standard that people want to kind of people are kind of get used to now. And Munster and nowhere is that more so than in Munster because of their historical connection with this tournament. And they can't get there at eight, the moment. Nine year odyssey there. to finally get over the winning line, and now a new decade long, eleven year long odyssey to get over there as well. And it means so much to their fans that very very often. You know, the Pro 14 feels like after the Lord Mayor's ball and they st- tend to struggle in the semi-finals there. But like I'm saying, if they could get over that line in the Pro 14, I think it would do wonders for the whole organisation. Will the Pro 14 not carry a little bit of extra clout this year on the grounds of the World Cup? That if you're somebody like Tyg Byrne, Europe, Europe is gone now. So you have to, if you have to show your form somewhere if you're going to nail down a place in the Irish team. I just don't want to get injured. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. Well, I think if Tyg Byrne showed up really well against James Ryan in the semi-final or final, yes, that's... That's got significant World Cup connotations. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Coventry, Jerry? by the way, the fact that they, they clearly got it wrong. I'd say if you yeah. asked European rugby about this, um, they'll, they'll give you loads of reasons why it had to be there. But when you got a half-empty stadium for a semi-final, 
Ronan Agar said it, it was very like watching Super Rugby. Like uh, they just they they couldn't fill the stadium. They got they got the clearly got the venue wrong on an Easter Easter Saturday weekend. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how you fix. It. I think all the London stadiums were were booked out or they weren't available or whatever. I'm sure we, there was a train. There was no trains from London. Yeah, to Coventry on, or Birmingham or anywhere. Screaming in the out to be in London that fixture. Yeah, it was. It? Yeah, yeah. I mean. But just even, for Irish fans, even. like it's quite remarkable that it's the low semi-final crowd since two thousand and one, sixteen thousand two hundred and thirty-five. Barely half the attendance when Saracens and Munster met in the same arena in was it two thousand and eight, mm. which is quite damning of the mm. current EPC or organisation. Could you imagine if ERC, um, the favourite whipping boys for Premier Premier League Premiership rugby and much of the British media, had presided over such an anticlimactic sense of occasion? Um, they would have got they would have got it in the neck in a major way, because Saracens are quite easy to dislike. It can't really be overlooked though quite how good they were yesterday. Like their back three was superb. Ben Spencer was brilliant. Owen Farrell was brilliant. They don't have very many flaws, do they? They make no. me feel like England can win the World Cup when yeah. I see them because like it's not the same and it's different. But like it's the same guys who. We, we saw on February 2nd and when well, doing what's what great about this final is that Leinster don't have their post-World Cup hangover yeah. they had three seasons ago when they lost five and six mm-hmm. pool matches and to think that the following season at the start of the season Stuart Lancaster Rob Carney was telling me stood in the gym in front of the entire squad you guys should be aiming to get five stars on your on your jersey yeah. at which point they only had three and the fourth looked a long long way away um, um, and you were right like you made the point last week about Saracens having a post-Lions dip, very definitely, because they were the bulk suppliers, the Lions of any club in Britain. This time, they're both hitting their straps. They're both fairly locked and fully loaded now that Lens have got Henshaw and Sexton and Toner back as well. And Sean O'Brien. And Sean O'Brien back. With the real Sean O'Brien. Again, Lions post-hangover yes. stuff for Henshaw yeah. and O'Brien yeah. probably. So it's, it's, it's the best two sides in the competition over the last three or four years finally meeting in the final. I, I, um, uh, but you're right about, you're right about uh, Saracens. They have a huge ball-carrying game. And they can do you in so many ways. They're brilliant in the air. Liam Williams, there's no better player in the air around. Alex Good is one of the most underrated fullbacks around. You can bring in David Strattle for Sean Maitland at the last minute and you lose nothing. Um, you've got, whenever we've talked, I know you've talked about Billy Vonopolo at length, but for whatever reason, when Mako Vonopolo is there, he also seems to play better. So you've got a double effect there of Mako Vonopolo probably being the best loose head in the world. I mean, the, the collisions we're going to talk about in the final, like Mako Vonopolo versus Tyg Furlong, all the way through to... Owen Farrell versus Johnny Sexton, so many others. It's it really is mouthwatering, and it's no coincidence that yet again, the two best out halves in the competition, the two best out halves in the Northern Hemisphere, are contesting the final. Yeah. If you look through all the the win, the Heineken Cup winning sides, not only does the best side invariably win, which is not guaranteed a knockout tournament, but they usually have world class out halves. Johnny Wilkinson, Alex King. Owen Farrell, Ron Nogar and Johnny Sexton are the only out halves to have won this competition Isn't it funny that Leinster kind of stumbled across their best team? Fardy wasn't going to be in the team. Mm. I think he just, I think you almost, you can't win big games without him mm. some, some of the times. And James Lowe as well. And James Lowe wasn't, probably wasn't going to be in the team, probably wasn't going to be in the squad. If, uh, if we just look at what's, yeah. what's previously happened and the two of them are game changers. Like, what makes me believe that Leinster can compete with Saracens in the final because Saracens are just they, mm. are the, they are the favourites now. Mm. They are the best. They, are, they look like the best team in Europe. But what makes me think that Leinster could compete with them and, p- and potentially beat them is the James Lowe try. Um, well, first of all, it was Johnny Sexton just clearly got him, got his body right and was just back to his normal self. But it was like they 
put it was so it was pre-planned it was multi-phase it was Rob Carney down the short side it was like Henshaw making making a bit of inroads Sean Cronin making inroads <laughs> Keen Healy making inroads <laughs> and offloading uh, ring roads and it was over and it was relentless relentless and they still had so much to do and it was just a Sean O'Brien offload and James Lowe's power and agility to get over that tells me that they can score against Saracens yep. but it yep. also Saracens are going to look at that and go we're going to Keen Healy's not going to make that yard he's going to get put back mm. and he's not going to offload same goes for Sean O'Brien but if those two can do what we saw them do in the weekend anything is possible for them. The other thing about when Scott Fardy is there is how dramatically improved the Leinster Mall is both offensively and defensively yeah. they scored a one try off it through him and they, and they prevented several malls it's just amazing it's Paul O'Connell with Munster it's Peter Armani with Munster it's that kind of at six blue. as well, Jerry. Yes. It has to be because Toner has to be on the pitch mm. for every every big game in a blue jersey or a green jersey from now till the end of the so year. So tough on Reese Ruddock mm. again, though, isn't it, Cav? Yeah, well, he's he, fantastic. Look, every time uh, Reese Ruddock is the side for the last two pool games and the quarter. And he was only got sick. No it wasn't even an injury. It wasn't even an injury. But like, yeah, his his career has just been cursed. Mm. And this was, was his Sunday best morning season. that he came out. He was going to miss. I don't know. Shafardi said he worked. He worked at. He trained at six all week. He said after the game. But he also said he was told by Leo Cullen on Saturday that he might be starting. Right. So they were unsure of Reese on Saturday. We know that much. So. Reese Ruddock's a quality player, but Fardy makes him a better team. But the thing that you couldn't help, like you say, watching this was, like as much as um, Munster were, were, had the air taken out of them by Joey Carberry being gone, Johnny Sexton mm-hmm. just, that's the best that we've seen Johnny Sexton play in a long, long time, isn't well, he's it? He's only barely played any rugby this year, you have to remember. Yeah, but, well, he, he hasn't played any rugby for Leinster since uh, he, that, he went down scrapping everyone in Limerick in December 29. That doesn't change the fact that it's been a long time since we've seen him at that level. I thought he was excellent in the French game at home. People dismissed that. Oh, it was he only was. France. He was excellent that day yeah. as well. Yeah, he was pretty good last year. Like He was the World Player of the Year and in every game almost. It, it, what happened was he just his, he said it before the game at the captain's run. He said, like, I... Yeah, the criticism's gone gone worse than it's ever his, but I've been getting it my entire life because I know what's wrong. And the implication was because I, I had to go get my body right. I've had loads of little niggles all from a quad or whatever whatever it was. And he goes, I went and got that right. So he st- he held himself back, held himself back, knowing that he could hit the ground running in a European semi final, which is remarkable. And you can't measure; it's almost intangible. You can't measure the impact that must have on all his fellow teammates. His range of passing, his, his range of passing, his kicking game, everything, just decision making on the ball. It's all so spot on and his skill set and his goal kicking um, and the same way Robbie Henshaw and Devon Toner as well when you get like really quality international players like back like that back in your in your team it just it it kind of it's a, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats you know what I mean it just has such an intangible effect on all the other players in the team as well so I think they'll go to they'll go to uh, Newcastle you fully believe they can win them. <laughs> yeah no, I think it's a pity in this it's, it, the bookies are calling it a scratch game really yeah they can't split them that's interesting. Dave Allred did a lot as well with Sexton. He came in last week. He gets him. If you ever look at Molinari's swing, it's a lot to do with Dave Allred. And uh, so many uh, sports stars rave about him. And he came in and spent a lot of time with Sexton in the lead up to the game, which um, I. Now, maybe I was looking for it because I knew about this, but I just felt that his his movement and his motion, he put a Gary Owen. Remember, he missed that long range penalty mm-hmm. and he put a Gary Owen up for Rob Carney. That was perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, mm-hmm. it was the perfect thing to put pressure on an opposition team. And he was. He wasn't bickering. He was his communication was solid with Wayne Barnes because it's not just about your movement; it's about your attitude with Alred and all that. His his communication with Wayne Barnes was solid. Mm-hmm. It was impressive. It was authoritative. Mm-hmm. But you know, there was all the pieces, the bits and pieces of his game. And he was laughing and joking to beat the band afterwards. And mm-hmm. he's saying Scott Fardy never trains. We call him Saturday, Saturday Fardy. <laughs> just shows up on a Saturday and. 
uh, interestingly, he's signed up for another year, so Checker won't be able to get him. Mm. I know it's a subplot, but it, I think I think it's worth noting that uh, Fardy, I'd say the Wallabies would love to have him back in now more than ever. The other thing would give you confidence as well is that so many of the the pack are playing well now, like Tyke Burns mm. playing really well again, Keane Healy's playing well. Fingers crossed Sean Cronin is fit because he had a barnstorming first half hour. Look bad, didn't it? Yeah, I hope he's fit. Um, Jack Conan is playing wonderful rugby. I mean, the thing that struck me about the performance was the quality of the carrying. Obviously, it's the influence of Lancaster. In the interview I did with Reese Ruddock, he reveals how um, Lancaster spent hours in the training ground, not first working on his on his work in the contact and the collisions carrying into him, and then changing direction just before the tackle at the line at the line of contact, just changing direction. You see it with Ring and Rose you see and Ring Henshaw. Rose. Yeah. You see it with Conan. You see it with so many of them. Shawnee even for the offload for the try. The the amount of times. They attack space or a short shoulder through late footwork. I mean, we celebrate Toulouse's back play and some of the, you know, Cheslin Colbay, Sofiane Gutoun, uh, Antoine Dupont, wonderful, wonderful footwork. But in many ways, Leinster matched them for footwork. I thought that was a huge factor in, their, in their game. Did Leinster deliberately, they seem to set a really high tempo. It looked definitely, to me like they didn't definitely, definitely. commit that many men to the breakdown you, to keep space and then yeah, they, they it, never slowed it down like at all. One of the tries emanated originally from James Lowe taking a quick 22 metre restart to himself. They just weren't letting Toulouse gasp, get, get any breath in their lungs. I think they were conscious of the fact that Toulouse are two 35-year-olds in their back row. Right. No real open side. Um, and uh, they just wanted to really move them around the park as much as much as possible. And it worked. Yeah, definitely much. thought it was a deliberate tactical plan to maintain a ridiculously high tempo for as long as they could. The Leinster defence was outstanding all the way through. Like, And then there was a couple of standout moments like um, Ringrose stopping Madard going over. Mm. But can either of you explain to me why Robbie Henshaw got sin-binned? Why was that not a penalty try? Uh, he went for the ball. He didn't go for the... In- I think he went for an interception. Did he? Was, that was really Slapped honest, it yeah. down, surely. He went, I think he went to grab it. If you sort of reach, that's why it wasn't a penalty try. He actually genuinely went for the ball. That was clearly that was the interpretation because it wasn't a penalty try. Mm. Toulouse are the most potent team in France, and that was the first time this season they were kept trialless. And this is after Leinster coming within one play of keeping them trialless in the RDS as well. I think you're dead right. I think this is the the, the Leinster defence is one of the most underrated aspects of their class and their quality. And I think it's come on even, it came on a notch last year, I think it's come on another notch this year. The amount of times Toulouse were on their line and they kept them out. Now, okay, made a brilliant, brilliant play by Gary Ringrose to stop Medar that time. But to actually think that they kept that Toulouse team trialless over 80 minutes. Do you think they're a better team than Saracens? Which thing is the better team right now from the evidence of... I can't split them. I think they're just both the best two teams in Europe by distance. I don't remember a final quite like this. The fact that the bookies are calling it a scratch game. I think it's the toughest final to call yet. Yeah, I, my only concern is, and it goes against exactly what I just said there, were the little edges that Leinster were able to force over with, with Toulouse. Like, th- so many of these Saracens players stopped the Irish rugby team from doing that in mm. the, what was the biggest game of the year back in February. And they, and like Saracens will be able to do that for a long period of time. I think Leinster need to hit the ground running like they did in this game. Or once you get caught in... Saracen's net once they drag you down into the dirt there's no way out so. also if they go a score or particularly two scores ahead you always feared for Munster if they fell two scores behind A because they didn't have Carby and Earl so they're not going to be great at playing catch up but also that's just grist the mill for Saracen that's when they up their line speed and defence that's when they just kick lines they come at us that's when they really choke you they're brilliant brilliant front runners I don't so think, initially I thought it was a bit much but Sexton turned around and said it after the game I, they've watched us and they've gone on about us beating them being a kind of a 
a starting point for them to re, to reclimb up towards the top of Europe. And she said, we need the biggest performances of our lives. We need the biggest games of our careers. And after everything, they, to careers, yeah, yeah, so you, after everything they've produced, do you think like, whoa, like that? I thought it was a bit over the top as well. I agreed yeah, with you, but, but then he, he, when you thought about it, it yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely, like. They beat, who did they beat in the previous round? They beat a Leicester side in Murrayfield that aren't as good as this Saracens team. They beat a very good Northampton side with a wondrous comeback, but still aren't as good as this Saracens team. All due respect to Ulster, not as good as this that Saracens Claremont team. That team in the middle of all that was pretty good. Yes, though, wasn't it? but they never got them in the final. And this is a stronger team than Racing last year as well. They have more weapons. Yeah, this is the toughest one, yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, if Johnny Sexton thinks that it's going to be the biggest test of his career, we'll... For Leinster, he said, yeah. For Leinster. Yeah, we, yeah. We'll tune in to watch it and hopefully we'll have the two of you back in to talk to us about it. Thanks very much, lads. Cheers. Normally, the NFL close season wouldn't really move the needle over on this side of the water, but there have been some huge stories in America in recent weeks away from the pitch. Daniel Comer, formerly of this parish, joins us on the line from Miami. Daniel's currently working with the Miami Marlins, so we're going to have to have him on to talk some baseball over the next couple of months. But today we're going to talk some American football. Good to have you on, Daniel. Oh, good to, good to be on. Good to be back with the team talking some football with you guys. So, like we were saying, it is, it's the off-season, but it has been a particularly interesting break in the NFL. There's been a lot going on, and we have to start with the sex scandal. Oh, Bob Kraft. Yeah, so, basically, he's this billionaire owner. He's a widower. His wife died a few years ago, um, and, of course, the New England Patriots owner. So he's not just any owner. He's the owner of the best NFL franchise over the past two decades. Um, so he's been embroiled in this scandal that broke out actually in Jupiter, Florida. I was in Jupiter when this news broke, and it was just one of these things that you, you read the headline, you say, billionaire owner caught up in sex scandal, basically a masseuse parlor thing. And the first thing you think is just like, what in the world is going on there? That's kind of funny is your first reaction. And then more news started to come out on it. And it, and it turned out to be sort of sex trafficking ring, potentially. Those were the early reports. I looked up on it a couple days ago, and apparently they're saying now it might not be or there's not concrete evidence because the workers there will not basically comply and say, yes, that this is, we're not being, they're not saying that they were held against their will, but it did look like that. And either way, it's a very bad look for Kraft, the Patriots, and the NFL, no matter what happens with this situation going forward. It definitely starts off as being a completely incongruous story that he's going to this very cheap looking um, masseuse parlor, massage parlor, this 77 year old, like you said, billionaire. I mean, you expect that if he is going to be soliciting prostitution, allegedly, that you'd imagine him more in an eyes wide shut, huge ballroom sex party kind of situation, wouldn't you? You would. This is a very strange thing. I mean, it's it seems very covert. It seems very uh, almost tacky. I don't know if tacky is the right word to use for this, but it doesn't seem like if if Robert Kraft was going to be participating in something like this, that he would be in Jupiter, Florida, in what, again, what you said, looks like a pretty rundown masseuse parlor. It's, it's a very strange look all around. And it was a huge scandal, though. A ton of other people are still caught up in this. Apparently, there's one big name that's yet to drop. I'm surprised that it hasn't yet, given the American media. They were all over this as soon as it happened. Um, but yeah, very strange indeed. I, I don't know what's going to come of it. Apparently, right now, his lawyers are trying to, like, they're, they're um, protesting the release of the video, which I, I don't want to see that video. I don't think it needs to get, I don't think anyone needs to see that video. 
Um, but that's kind of the current state of it as it stands today. Yeah, that's a remarkable part of it. So basically, the investigating officers, because they were going to be investigating sex trafficking, which would have been a felony, they were able to get warrants issued that allowed them to secretly install cameras, which means there is actually video footage of Robert Kraft uh, engaging in this sex act. And under the Florida's Sunshine Law, which essentially means they have to release um, anything that is governmental public records, this video could actually come out. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, I Again, I don't know who's who benefits from it coming out. That would be my, my thing. And I know that his, his um, lawyers are apparently protesting the idea that, okay, well, it's turning, if, if they're saying it's turning out not to be a sex trafficking ring or something to do with sex trafficking, then the, them putting cameras in there in the first place, it, it shouldn't have happened. So that's what they're protesting. They're protesting the process. Um, we'll see how it turns out. I don't know. But I know that the police have then said, well, it had all the looks of a sex trafficking ring. These women were cooking on hot plates. They were staying on cots in the back. Like it looked like it. And so they were able to go ahead and put the cameras in there. We'll see what happens. I don't know. Money talks. Maybe Robert Kraft figures his way out of this. But there will be, in my estimation, from what I've read, some sort of punishment coming down for him. And there is some precedent for this. Um, the NFL suspended Jim Mersey, that's the Colts owner, for six six weeks uh, a few years ago. So there is some precedence for, for punishment for uh, an NFL owner as well. I really like some of the contradictions involved in this story that Kraft is charged with uh, misdemeanor solicitation of prostitution and he's pleaded not guilty. But his legal team, when they were arguing against the video being released, have said that it's basically pornography. And that's the, their, their own <laughs> way of describing it. So um, you, I'm not quite sure how that circle squares. Um, is there an issue, though, here, Daniel? Um, basically, the, the media want these videos released because it's just all kind of rather salacious and all that. It does uh, some of the joy about this story that's going on is a tie into how unpopular the Patriots are? It might. I, I think it could just because everyone knows who Robert Kraft is. He's such a noticeable guy, an entity. Um, if this were a lesser-known franchise, I don't even know if it's necessarily that people dislike the Patriots and therefore they dislike Bob Kraft because I think, as a whole, people don't seem to dislike Bob Kraft. People seem to... I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't seen any hate from him historically, and they hate Bob Kraft. They might hate Bill Belichick. They might hate Tom Brady. But I, I don't think that it's necessarily they hate the Patriots, so they want to see Bob Kraft burn. I think this is more of just, it's sensational, it's crazy, it's weird, it's funky, it's going to get clicks. I think that's a big part of it. Um, now, if it were a lesser-known franchise, I don't think it would be as big of a deal as it is. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily because people hate the Patriots that this is becoming a big deal. It's more so just because they've been good. Um, it, it, that's something that I think might get conflated here is people hate Bob Kraft. No, people might hate the Patriots. People know Bob Kraft because they're good. Might also be helped along by the fact that Kraft is quite good friends with Donald Trump, isn't he? Yeah, I've, you know, that, that I'm not sure. I've seen some, like, I've seen that he is. I've seen that they've beefed in recent years. I, I'm not exactly sure what the status of that is now. I don't know how political it gets from that standpoint. I know if I'm sitting here saying, you know, I haven't looked too much into that. My guess is that the average American football fan uh, won't look into that as much. But also, if you look at the average American football fan, it might be a middle-aged white man who in America, on the whole, there's probably less disdain towards Donald Trump than there is in other demographics. 
Um, moving on towards uh, the actual football pitch, or at least a little bit closer to the football pitch, we have the draft coming up uh, later in the week, and we'll get to that shortly. But the biggest transfer of the summer has already happened. Odell Beckham Jr., the wide receiver for the New York Giants, has moved to the Cleveland Browns. Tell us how good a player he is and equally explain why the Giants were willing to let him go. Boy, that's a lot. Yeah, so Odell Beckham came into the league a few years ago, first-round pick out of LSU. That's Louisiana State University. Um, He came in, and and from day one, it looked like he was going to be an all-pro. Well, really, he was injured for a little bit to begin with. But he's been one of the best receivers in the NFL since he stepped on the pitch. Uh, the one thing I will say is he hasn't always been very healthy. He's had a couple seasons recently. Last year, for instance, he only played, I think, four games this year. He played 12. So he's played 16 games over the past two years. That's an average of half a season over the past two years. Um, but he is an all-pro wide receiver. There are some headaches with him. There are a lot of off-the-field concerns from what I've heard, what I've read. This guy is someone who gets into it sometimes. He's a little bit of a pariah. He can be high maintenance, and that's how a lot of wide receivers have been. Historically, they've been sort of the very me, selfish, arrogant, whatever. Um, But I think that there are a lot of levels to his personality. It's not fair for me to say the Giants dealt him because of his personality off the field issues. But I will say teams know so much more than, than me on the outside, right? I've learned that working with a team now is that, you know, as much as Mel Kuyper... Um, Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay, the, the NFL draft analysts, and all these people who write these articles for ESPN and other outlets, they say things, and then I, I consume that, and I say, that's what's, that's what's true. So I'm upset if a player gets traded. Or I'm, but I've learned that the, the team knows more than anything else. The team deals with the player on a daily basis. So the Giants have their own reasons for trading Odell. And I think they also look at the window, and they say, we're not going to be good for the next two or three, four years anyways. We might as well get some value out of Odell while we can, because if, he, if we've got him for the next four years and we don't think we're going to contend for the next four years, why not scrap it down and build? Because really, there are like 11 other teams in the NFC that I've counted that are better than, Gi- than the Giants today and, and look like they will be for the next two or three seasons. In a way, that approach that you're saying there is kind of what the Cleveland Browns have been doing for the last couple of years. And lots of people think that it's now going to come to fruition. They Essentially won one game, I think it was, over 2016 and 2017. But now, next year, they're going to come in. They're going to have Baker Mayfield, at quarterback. They're going to have Beckham, Jarvis Landry. They'll have Kareem Hunt once he serves his suspension. Are are they looking like playoff contenders this season? They're absolutely looking like playoff contenders. The only thing is they've got that first-year coach in Freddie Kitchens. A lot of people have questioned his ability to lead in general being a first-year coach, but especially all these personalities. Uh, I think a lot of things have looked good on paper in the past, but it hasn't necessarily worked. There was an Eagles team a few years ago that had Vince Young came in. Mike Vick was on the team. They had a bunch of other pieces uh, that don't come to mind right now, but they were they were hailed as the dream team before the season, and they massively, massively underperformed on expert ex- expectations. So we could see that happen here in, in, in Cleveland, and you just never know what happens in the locker room. Football's a tough sport, maybe, uh, these guys, these wide receivers get chippy with their defensive backs in practice one day. And then all of a sudden there's, you know, issues within the organization. And this first year head coach isn't necessarily sure how to handle it. It's a wait and see approach. They definitely have the pieces on the field. But I'm also interested. You mentioned that backfield. Um, obviously, they do have Kareem Hunt coming back. But Nick Chubb is already there. He was incredible last year as a rookie for the Browns. So how are you going to deal with managing the playtime? Also, wide receivers Jarvis Landry and Odo Beckham. They're best friends. They went to LSU together. But 
how are they going to handle maybe not getting as many targets or, you know, not having as many receiving yards at the end of the season? That's something to manage as well, because these guys are big personalities and it will not be easy. So the NFL draft is is on next Thursday and the name that's on everybody's lips is Kyler Murray. Dan, you might explain uh, briefly what the draft is and why Kyler Murray is such a, a hot prospect. So the NFL draft is is basically the incoming former college players, uh, the best players in at the collegiate level coming into the NFL. And each team in the first round, 32 teams, have a pick, have a first-round pick. And so they'll get to select their choice based on their previous record. So the worst team last year will have the first pick this year in the draft and pick the best college player available. A lot of people are saying Kyler, Mayer, Kyler Murray is that guy. Uh, he's mobile. He's very athletic. He's got a cannon for an arm. And he's also, he can, he's very accurate. He can pass within the pocket. He was the Heisman Trophy winner, which is the award in college for the best college football player um, last year. And he also, there's some precedence here as he, he's coming from Oklahoma. This is the school that Baker Mayfield came from. Uh, and Baker Mayfield had a great rookie season. Kyler Murray had a better season at Oklahoma than Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield did. So the evidence points to Kyler Murray potentially having a better NFL first season than Baker Mayfield did. And he's dynamic. A lot of people are saying he's the best mobile quarterback prospect since Michael Vick. And do we know who's, is it the Cardinals that are likely to draft him? The Cardinals are, it, it seems to be pointing that direction. Um, right now, the Cardinals have Josh Rosen, a guy they drafted, I think, 10th overall last year out of was it UCLA. Um, so it's a very interesting thing that they're going to have to do because maybe they're going to draft a first-round quarterback two years in a row, which you rarely, rarely see that, and then they might trade Josh Rosen. But it's too early to say what exactly is going to happen. Things seem to be pointing that way. I know Cliff Kingsbury, who is the former former Texas Tech, co- Texas Tech coach who is now coaching the Cardinals, said before he took the Cardinals job that he would select or he would like to select if he ever had the first overall pick, Kyler Murray. So that's something there's some things are pointing in that direction. And I would not be shocked. I don't think anyone would be shocked at this point to see Murray go number one. The amazing thing about him is, though, that about Murray, that as recently as January, he basically only seemed to decide on American football as his first sport. Right. Yeah. So Murray was drafted um, by the Oakland Athletics for baseball and given a five million dollar signing bonus and basically stipulated you'll play one year of football at Oklahoma and then you'll come play baseball. And that was going to be the deal Uh, there. This has happened before. This isn't the first time there's been a multi-sport athlete that has to choose. But it is throughout the season. People are saying, oh, choose baseball, longer career, more money. But realistically he might have a longer career in baseball but so many of those primitive years those first years as a professional baseball player are spent in the minor leagues and there's a putrid salary so he might make five million but for again if you look at last year's like first round pick uh baker mayfield he got 30 million dollars on a four-year deal and most of that if not all of it is guaranteed so it's 30 million versus the five million that you it's 30 million american football if he's the first overall pick or thereabouts Versus the five million signing bonus, which is what he was guaranteed to some of the athletics, you know, and he's much further along as a football prospect than he is as a baseball prospect. So overall, I think he made the right decision financially, um, but he also he seems to love football. He seems to like football more than he liked baseball. And that's the biggest thing. We've only got one life to live, so might as well do it doing something that you love, not something that you're doing for a paycheck. 
Do the Oakland A's get their five million back? I think they do. I'm not exactly sure. I think that they do. I'm pretty sure that they do get their five million back, but I do not believe that they get that draft pick back. So they drafted, I think, ninth overall, and it's the same way in baseball as it is in football. It's reverse order from the standings the previous year. So they had a terrible year the previous year, and then they drafted nine overall. They took Kyler Murray. They knew it was a risk, but now they come up with pretty much nothing from that pick, nothing from that previous season of having poor performance throughout the year. The return was supposed to be a number nine overall pick, but now they've got nothing to show for it. Taking on your first pick on a guy who decides against playing the sport isn't exactly a great move, is it? It's very risky. It was very risky when it happened. I think a lot of people were questioning, man, look, he's got potential, but really, you know he's going to go play football. Like, But, you know, I, I, if I were the A's, I wouldn't have done it. It was a huge risk. I think they weighed the risk versus reward. And, and to this day, they still say, well, you know, we're not totally sure if he's never going to come play football. We, they still own his draft rights. So if this season were to go terribly and Kyler just decided, you know, long-term health, whatever, I want to go play baseball, he would have to go back to the, to the Oakland Athletics. Excellent. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see where Kyler Murray and indeed some of the other prospects end up next week. Dan, we hopefully will be talking to you later on in the season or once the football actually starts. Um, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Malachi Clerken will be back next Monday unless he decides to move to Donegal permanently. Thanks to Dan Comer there for talking to us about the NFL. Thanks to Jerry Thornley for chatting rugby with us. Thanks to you, Gavin. My pleasure. Thanks to Jenny and JJ on the desk and we will see you all next week. Stay safe. <laughs>